Hello and welcome to the Warfighter Training Simulation Podcast, episode 14. Time flies. It's amazing how time flies. We're actually, we're one month away from the end of season one and I, I genuinely can't believe, firstly, how quickly six months have gone and secondly, I think the flow we've managed to get into for the podcast, um, I'm hoping people have been getting some value from it. Yeah, and I, I did a big blitz on lots and lots of interviews, lots of people who, who are sort of scheduled and I guess keen to feature, which is nice. So... AI. Just want to bring this up again because there has been so much happening in AI. Yes, apparently. I I, <laughs> I got halfway through, well, in fact, more than halfway through a business plan for using AI and 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 a you know chat GPT style thing. Um, you know, had a, potentially had an investor lined up. It was really exciting. And then just the big players, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Chat GPTs are just building on their offerings so quickly that anyone that comes up with a bright idea, they've already thought about it and they've already Im- implemented into it. So you just sh- shouldn't crack on doing it but it's so exciting and i'm still going to start to implement a bit more ai functionality into the kind of the workflow for the podcast so you'll be seeing the episode art changing and just all that good stuff so um and titles etc so hopefully people will be able to go oh that's uh that's tom playing around with the internet again <laughs> i think we talked about having one of the hosts replaced by some automation one of them if people notice <laughs> one or both right. he says Maybe that's already happened and no one notices yeah i mean have you been following it it's very interesting i'd say it's democratization of this stuff it's been around in the background people have been playing with it but now it's kind of available to whoever wants to pick it up and use it so yeah it is one of those kind of key moments i think and you're still figuring out it's like sort of when cloud computing or Google search turned up, you know, people working out how they make money, how do they leverage that capability? It takes a while, but we'll look back on this time. Yeah, the functionality is being built into ChatGPT now is crazy and it's destroying small businesses. So if you think you've got a good idea for AI that can leverage ChatGPT or chatbots or whatever it might be, think again and certainly do your research because I do think that any software that's going to be built needs to have AI as a key facet now because I just think if you don't, you're going to fall behind. But equally, your product can't hang upon AI and chatbots, et cetera, because I think the risk of that is it's just going to get built into the chatbots you're, you're, you're building your product on and, and then you fall over. So you've got to offer more than just, you've got to supplement your solution with it, not be build it upon it. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, <laughs> clearly we won't get away from the AI topic, but it, it might make might be easier to put it into context. Yeah. Before we get into our subject, quick shout out to our sponsors, Improbable. Allow us to do this and give us immense freedom. Very grateful. We've got another session, deep dive into some of their technology and concepts to look forward to. Mm-hmm. But on to the subject for today, which is bottom-up innovation. And I said to you, Tom, the hell is bottom-up innovation? <laughs> you, you also said that this episode is, <laughs> you're not so sure this interview is about bottom-up innovation. So I thought, let's discuss it before we start, and then the listeners can make a decision. <laughs> so, so the mini rant, which is not my idea, but something I read earlier this week, and it was about some of the craziness about how we think we make innovation happen. And to tell the story, it was about, this is not new, because loads of organizations do this, and you're our listeners will probably be able to relate to. But, you know, traditionally what we've had is innovation bake-offs. So once a year, you're allowed to have a good idea and you'll put your good idea into a competition. And then the senior senior panel will assess the best idea, a bit like the best cake. (laughs) And the prize for that is a book voucher. And I'm not making that up because that's what actually happened. And you think about that and go, that's insane. I know exactly what you're talking about and without you saying it, I've seen that within the military happen. That is not what I'm trying to suggest you as bottom-up innovation. It's actually, and I'm hoping 
that this conversation will be. You know, at the time, our guest was a reservist captain and he took his idea, not just from, oh, this is a bright idea, but actually he managed to bring on board key stakeholders, then somehow managed to identify millions of pounds worth of investment for the big idea and then saw it through to fruition. So it's the opposite of the Bake Off. It's the mission command down to the level of which where the good idea originated from. And instead of saying, thanks for that nice cake, see you next year, they've gone, oh, that's a nice cake. Well, go out there and make it happen, scale it, grow it, et cetera. Yeah, people talk about the theater of innovation and there's loads of things that go on and go, oh, look, fancy, shiny thing. And then fancy, shiny thing gathers dust in a cupboard, which I think this is what Ed's going to be talking about is, okay, identifying a problem and and this is not new so in lean manufacturing this has been written about where the lowest worker can identify an issue and the penalty for identifying an issue is that you get to be part of the solution and that ethos how do you develop that and empower talk about bottom up but it doesn't matter what your rank is it doesn't matter what your position is you are empowered to solve that or help to solve that and that's where ed's coming from isn't it yeah, his journey and his story is really exciting. So without further ado, this is Ed Edburn, founder of UK Battle Lab. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for giving up your time. As is tradition, Ed, could you please uh, introduce yourself, give us your background, why we find you here today? Sure. So I'm Ed Eben. I'm a, well, I was an army reservist for about 17 years. And since February, I'm now a Navy reservist, but I'm also the founder of the Defence Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Battle Lab. I've been on FTRS, so full-time reserve service for about the last eight years, ran information operations for a period of time and started then bringing in some innovative capability at about the same time as Defence was investing in innovation. So I've been founder of the Battle Lab, head of innovation for a few organizations and now part of Navy X. Great. And for the people that maybe have heard a few things that, that Ed said there and don't know those organizations, don't worry, we're going to cover the whole journey pretty much in this chat and every single, you know, the key organizations that Ed mentioned in a bit more detail, because I think it's fascinating. The reason why I've asked you, Ed, to come on is because I think your journey and what you've managed to achieve in a relatively short space of time with Battle Lab supporting defense innovation going forward, I think is hugely impressive and not just, you know, again, blowing smoke, but I think it will hopefully make a big difference to defense going forward. So I really wanted to shine a spotlight on it with a focus on the fact that the organization of the MOD, and that's your know, tri-service and all that good stuff, allowed you allowed probably is an interesting term, but allowed you to go from your idea through to fruition of the battle lab as a, you know, experienced, respected, but ultimately a, a reserve captain doing some interesting jobs. Normally, when we're talking about the figures and you know, the cost, and we'll talk about how much it costs, but it's in the multi-millions to build the last battle lab, that's not necessarily left with the with a captain to lead on that. That goes higher up. So hopefully, uh, listeners will get some real value about uh, your journey, some understanding of how defense will benefit from being a bit more flexible and allowing this kind of bottom-up innovation. Let's start off by looking at what is the Battle Lab now in its current incarnation? So where I'm sat currently is the office space that we've created on the Dorset Innovation Park. So that's three floors of co-working office space, about 150 desks to bring defence and industry users together. So half of one floor is set aside for MOD, DSTL, other partners across government, primarily in the sort of security space. And then we've also got a large agricultural hangar. It does, does look better than it sounds. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's got some office space in it, but it's primarily a test space where people can come and actually bring things and test them. And then 10 minutes drive away, we've got the Lulworth Ranges, uh, where a portion of that we can use 
for testing and experimentation. So 15,000 feet of cleared airspace, live fire capable, can shut down parts of the sea. So really somewhere we can come and do uh, experimentation testing, or if you're in the science world, you call it applied science. <laughs> I think before we go, because that, that sounds great, and it sounds like, of course, we, we need that within defense. But before you came up with it, that didn't exist, that functionality. So I'd like to know that the journey you, you've had to go on to make this into a fruition. But before we go into that, I suppose it'd be worth highlighting what were the key problems you were trying to solve with the Battle Lab before we go? Or would you prefer to talk about the journey, which then would show your thought process as it evolved? So I think if, if we do the journey, it's fairly instructive of how and why we want to have not prolonged timelines, but certainly a process that allows the space for thinking and experimentation and changes in design, rather than sort of being locked into a program that you signed up for for the next 10 years. Okay. So if we rewind about five or six years, innovation was the new buzzword within defense, but there was also a lot of investment going into it. So each of the single services had their own innovation teams, significant portions of money to spend per annum on innovation projects. I brought in a couple of pieces of that innovation. I hesitate to say it's incoherent, but there's a lack of communication, which is not something I actually blame the MOD for in any way, shape or form. It's the, the consequence of being a large organization mm-hmm. uh, and having worked in the corporate world. I've seen that on, on both sides of the fence. At the same time, I got approached by some guys who were looking to, to build something on one of the Lulworth ranges. They were effectively trying to hit me up to see if they could get innovation money for something that was completely uninnovative. But uh, <laughs> after we'd, we'd established that that wasn't going to happen, I got them to tell me more about the ranges. And they, they said, you know, there was this portion of range outside the tank firing area that had these this 15,000 feet that you could fly drones in. And effectively, there was sort of a light bulb moment of like, okay, well, this is something that UK industry needs because I speak to small businesses that are going to Spain, the US, South Africa and elsewhere to go and do their testing, which is prohibitively expensive for, for startups in particular. Just to rewind slightly again, is the Dorset Innovation Park I knew was 10 minutes drive away and having lived in Dorset for quite some time, knew that this was a government enterprise zone, knew that it was an initiative to stimulate the economy within Dorset and bring more high-tech jobs to the area. So had a chat with the Dorset Local Enterprise Partnership uh, who said, yes, they had money set aside for an innovation hub, 1.5 million, which wasn't enough to build an innovation hub. And actually that seemed to be a logical solution to pair the testing area with an innovation center. And if that could bring a bit of coherence to defense in terms of how we communicate with each other, how we deliver projects, how we partner with industry, then it seemed like a good idea. So that was the basic concept. And one of the first things I did was effectively draw a line from Portsmouth to Plymouth, which goes straight through where I'm sat currently. Uh, And then from here up in a kind of inverted T through Bovington, Blandford, Warminster. So you've got a significant, if not the majority of the British Armed Forces there or, or within a two hours drive, which translates into effectively users with problem sets. And from an industry side, customers with checkbooks potentially. So there should have been a, a sensible draw on that. I'd love to say all of this was my own idea, but what I've really done is stolen the best bits from what I've seen around the world. <laughs> um, having been to places like Softworks and seen Afworks in, in the US, seeing the test ranges they've got in Southern California, and looking at the things like the Israeli defense model, where you don't have to explain to industry over there what the military does and why, why it does it, because they've all done two years military service. So that was the sort of basic premise that allowed me to then take that as a concept out to the wider military 
And effectively, at that point, I was looking for the ability to tap into the Defence Innovation Fund, which was originally back then Gavin Williamson's 800 million over 12 years. But you had to have match funding in order to do that, one third to two thirds match funding. So I went for the, the maximum limit of what I was allowed to apply for and worked back from there, really, and went around Army, Navy and others trying to get a million so that I could then make an application to the, the Defence Innovation Fund. The Army got it, in all fairness, you know, and credit to them that they, they understood the concept. They invested in it early and stumped up the million which allowed me to then put a sort of more comprehensive proposal into the Defence Innovation Fund for the 2 million match funding, which I got, and then added that to the Dorset Local Enterprise Partnerships, 1.5 million. Then we we had something to to deliver. That's, in a nutshell, where, where we went from and to. It's probably worth us talking about how the thinking matured over the timelines of getting that money, because I think that's really the interesting part of the journey. In, in the time it took, you know, it took um, about a year and a half, nearly two years probably to, to get to that, that point. What I realised as we were you know, staring at the problem for longer was that we were doing a classic military thought process in that we put ourselves at the centre of everything as the most important element uh, and then worked back from there about how to solve our problems. And actually, the reality was we need to put industry at the heart of the problem. And that's primarily because we've not been important to anyone outside of some very big defence primes for quite a number of decades now. Your consumer electronics has far outstripped uh, anything we're doing. Whereas if you rewound 30 years, defence was in the driving seat, pushing industry to deliver science and technology. And if you put industry at the heart of the problem set and solve those problems, really defence's problems go away. And those are primarily problems around access to end users, the people who actually have the problem sets rather than the guys with the money or who've been tasked with delivering a programme of works. Because let's be honest, you know, defence users aren't trained to articulate their problem sets. Uh, We have a process which involves a statement of requirement, which involves someone who's been posted into a role for two years and might have been doing something completely completely unrelated the two years prior to that, writing a statement of requirement. So we're in a slightly vicious cycle of we write a statement of requirement, we get what we asked for, and then when it arrives, we go, oh, that's not actually what I need because I'm not very good at articulating what's the problem I want to solve. We're much better at finding the pieces of shiny kit to then go and buy. And actually, uh, if we can give industry access to the users before they've even built the products, they can elicit the actual problem sets that need solving to build products that inherently will want to buy because they are viscerally solving a problem that, that we have. Access to end users, access to innovation money to actually do MVPs and proof of concept, and then really access to, to a broader spectrum and bringing in all the services for various collaboration. So that's the sort of where we inverted the thinking. I think we became more useful and more valuable in innovation, defense industry and everything in between, hopefully. Yeah. And as you were speaking, you know, I was smiling away and nodding, talking about the challenging of articulating the requirements, but without having the ability to know what's available. How do you know what you want unless you've been shown what, what's there? And it is a, is a challenging conundrum that hopefully you know, you're going a good way to solve. Your journey is unique in, in the way that it sounds very logical and clear flow. But did you hit any kind of key barriers and how did you overcome them as you're going through that journey? So it's almost like you're suggesting that there's times when the military doesn't follow a logical process. I can't, I can't believe that. <laughs> Your words. I think it's, 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 that, it's, that, it's that well-known, it's that well-known <laughs> phrase, the plan went well, like a, a military... Didn't survive first contact. Well, yeah, well, well-oiled military <laughs> machine. It's like, <laughs> yeah, come across one of those. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the initial pushback was... The system will never, you're on a hiding to nothing effectively. You know, the system will never get the concept. It'll take too long, et cetera, et cetera. And to be honest, had I been in a, a two-year role rather than an FTRS contract that could be renewed, that would probably have been true. Because this is also part of what the Battle Lab is looking to solve to a degree, is that industry provides the continuity. 
we've built in an inherent problem in that we move people on every two years. So yeah, having the longevity and able to be able to see a project through from concept through to actual full completion definitely puts me in a privileged position. But yeah, the system at times did push back. And the big question is usually why Dorset, which is the very first thing we we had to answer. And in all fairness, that is a, a fair question. But actually, what we've got here is a happy accident of geography that allows us to put an innovation park adjacent to a test range, adjacent to a whole bunch of military bases, which is something that you actually don't have anywhere else in the world. You have elements of that, um, you know, the individual component parts, but nothing that's uh, all together in the same space you know i was guilty of that when i first heard about the battle lab i was like sorry it's where <laughs> okay that's <laughs> really far away from me <laughs> like, it's all right us, uh, not us london dorset boys yeah. uh, us dorset boys can stick together yeah, yeah, yeah finally yeah, there's exactly. a reason for dorset, dorset. <laughs> being <laughs> discriminated retired against retired telegraph readers that's right <laughs> exactly how much value or or how much did you lean upon your experience from the commercial world, from outside of the military as a civilian? That you know, did did it? Did that give you the that experience? Give you the confidence to know that it isn't the problem? Isn't just the military? It's, it's on both sides, and therefore it allowed you to go. No, no, this will help somewhat to solving it. I mean, the one thing that I have gotten similarity with a lot of people in the military is just a, a massive amount of self belief, <laughs> also known also known as a big ego, um, but. Actually, I had to produce the data to be able to justify any of this. I mean, if, if you're going to get pub- public money, you have to show the data. But nothing we were doing here was revolutionary or groundbreaking. You know, we were taking concepts that already works and we could point to either different parts of the world from a military context or different sectors within a civilian context. You know, the concept of accelerators, incubators, catapults, uh, it's a well, well-trodden path uh, in mm-hmm. the UK. It's just that there's nothing in this sector doing that. It definitely took a lot of persuasion and definitely used some of the work that I'd done. You know, I was originally a headhunter. What is interesting about dealing with the military is people will say, Ed's a salesman. <laughs> That's absolutely not the case at all. And if you meet real salesmen, you'll, you'll, you'll know what that feels like. But the reality is there's, a, there's an element of humility and not pushing, certainly not pushing boundaries and concepts. For a starter, you know, there's no part in your annual report that gets you your next promotion that ticks a box says, you know, has he destroyed a system along the way? Um, (laughs) And in the same way, there's no, there's no part of your report that says, did he or she fail well this year? Because actually, we're not rewarded for failure. And uh, one of the things I did have to say is that the Battle Lab is an innovation project in and of itself. And if it fails, you know, it's been an experiment that we've learned a lot from mm. um, and invested a small sum of money rather than building the next white city deep tech innovation hub for £20 million. It's, even the construction of it, you know, we did differently and took it out of the hands of the military by partnering with the council, which allowed us to do things much quicker, if I'm perfectly honest, and probably cheaper. That in and of itself was slightly innovative. I think you've touched on a few things that we sort of aspire to on the show. And one of those is just to put a spotlight on things to say, hey, is this thing over here? Check it out, borrow, steal. And the other observation is, I think if you're doing innovation in the military or with the military, if you get someone that's with you for two years, I think you're doing really well. I mean, I know I know people who are posted 10 months. Yeah. And you just go, how does that work? It, I guess, could you speak a bit about that? It seems to be the innovation Achilles heel in the, certainly in militaries. You don't get that continuity. So how are you able to bridge that? It's still a challenge. The reality is for the Battle Lab to be successful, I would suggest that private organization needs to run it. You know, we need to con- contract out and professionalize 
the running of that, but not just in the sense of military instantly defaults to thinking that's facilities management, but actually there are a plethora of organizations out there that will do an end-to-end innovation as a service and this being somewhere you can house that. And that comes back to our statement of requirement point. If we put that in real terms, AI is probably the best example. Relatively new technology to the military, but mature enough that we should be looking at it, doing stuff with it. And you've got AI companies specifically set up around defense and they're knocking on our door saying, you know, give us your problems. And we're sat there saying, I don't really understand AI. So, I mean, could it shave an hour off my day? Like we don't ask the question, could it replace me entirely? <laughs> um, and so actually, you know, if you, if, if you can bring in the ability to veer and haul with the technologies you're interested in by having something like a contracted service or a professional service, or even potentially the support of government scientists, that can say, look, we understand this, we'll do a discovery phase, which will elicit the problem sets from the users, and then we'll get that down in a logical format that can, and an auditable format to our thinking. And then we can construct competitions and tenders for industry that are well constructed, asking good questions with good metrics. That would be probably my, my perfect world. We're not there yet, but I think with things like the Battle Lab and some of the innovation hubs, we're demonstrating that we can do good innovation up to a point but could we turbocharge that? Coming back to your point of continuity, I can't see any mechanism for doing that other than civil servants or actually contracting out that. And it's what some of the other co-creation hubs have done across national security. So Cheltenham's cyber hub is run by Plexel, for example. You know, hearing you say that does put a few alarm bells in my head, I suppose, and it'd be interesting to explore that. It's- it is very hard for commercial entities to maintain independence, regardless of what they write on a, on a tender or whatever it might be. Because depending on how big the organization is, they will have other contracts, other partners, other opportunities they're bidding for, whatever it might be. Interesting to hear how you think that might be mitigated to avoid that risk. So I think innovation as a service needs to come from people who don't bid on MOD contracts. It needs to be people who provide that and that's what they do for a living. I hesitate to say it's not dissimilar to consultancy. Consultancy doesn't have necessarily the greatest reputation at times, (laughs) but it's bringing in the ability to to manage a discovery phase primarily from a program or project management point of view and get that down and bring in experts where needed from subcontractors or whatever that looks like in order to be able to veer and haul depending on the technology you're interested in. Because Battle Lab is a good example. We could have someone sat on one desk who has an AI problem, sat next to someone else who has a drone problem, sat next to someone else who has a boat problem, you know, and how do you service all those requirements? And you know, DSCL is very good and we have a lot of deep expertise there, but it's also deep, deep expertise that is committed to projects and how do we do the stuff that we want to find out we don't know what we don't know. We need to find out whether we need this. So that would be the only option, I think, from my perspective. I think you're right. That could be a good solution. The only challenge there is that you have to have a deep understanding of defense as well to be able to connect the innovation dots from a civilian application. You could be a great person who understands you know, AI to a high level, but actually then how do you apply it to solve defense problems, knowing all the complexities associated, not all, but a good proportion of the complexities associated with dealing with all the organizations, the end users, and you know, we are a, a unique organization with a unique ways of operating. So I do tend to lean on DSTL scientists on that occasion and try and get you know an afternoon of their time 
for example. So they can sit down with someone doing a discovery phase and the users, and they can help bridge that gap, do that translation service to a degree. And that's part of what we offer here at the Battle Lab for Industry, effectively, is this is the behemoth that is defense, and we'll do that translation between the two. And for the users also, like in industry and the fact it wants to make money isn't a problem. Yes, be alive to it, but it doesn't mean that they're in any way out to uh, just sell stuff to you all the time. I've done it in specific use cases with deep technical expertise from a operational point of view, and then brought in a, a deep tech expertise from a DSTL scientist who's able to bridge that gap. And that kind of is the example I used earlier, where the operational expertise was asking, could it shave an hour off my day? But by the end of the conversation, the DSTL scientist had helped them uh, with a contractor get to the point where it's like, we may not need you in your current format anymore if this technology works. And they were enthused by that, which is which was good. <laughs> it's really fascinating because I think you touch on a lot of really interesting points. You know, certainly being involved in some of this, often the issue is we don't actually know what the problem is. The order comes from on high, says, innovate, make it better. It's like, well, we can do the good idea fairy, that's fine. But, you know, you might have a good idea and the user says, that has nothing to do with my job. That's not actually what my... So that that's a really interesting area. But I do wonder if we've got a sort of a massive cultural change piece to do here and about failing well and no one gets marked up for going, well done on that project. It didn't work, but hey, hell, we learned a lot. Do you think that education and cultural change is part of what you're trying to do? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's a bigger thing that I can solve you know, here and as one individual. But I think how we incentivize a combination of educated risk and failure, and that's not just from the military side of things. I think it's part of the wider procurement and how we look at why would anyone take risk if any kind of failure is going to have a detrimental effect on their career. And we do need to find a different way of incentivizing that. And I think a lot of people are alive to it. I'm just not seeing the, the solutions to it just yet. But I think we all know that there's certain elements of the way we do things that could be improved. And I think defense procurement has some great successes and some notable failures uh, as well in it. What innovation should be striving to do is to make those failures earlier and therefore cheaper so that we don't end up making big failures in, in big programs. But I think there's also a cultural shift in that we're used to big programs, uh, delivering warships, tanks, you know, even drones, you know, big expensive drones. The reality is we're starting to see the emergence of a, uh, of a military technology technology from a hardware perspective that is ubiquitous and disposable and cheap because it's cheap. That's a real cultural shift. You know, disposability of and, and the ability to sacrifice technology. But we're seeing that played out in real time with the Ukraine. You know, anyone who watches the news can see that. So there's a lot of different moving parts to, to change. But I think there is definitely a shift. But you know, defense is a tanker. It's not, it's not going to change overnight. Just moving on to my next question. So you now built, is it fully built now? The ribbon was cut in May. Excellent. So how, how are industry currently using it? So this is one of the other things that as the thinking matured uh, and we started to make about industry is what we were trying to build was a blank canvas or a motherboard or however you want to phrase it, but somewhere where any user or any form of tech could come along and make it relevant to them. Now, as I'm sure you've all experienced, normally from the military, you sit there, this would be slide one of 50, and we'd be talking about the sort of timeline for success and how well, every single risk had been mitigated and therefore it would be, be successful. The premise of the battle lab was largely build it and they will come and we will let them define how they're going to use it. We just need to make sure that we've created something 
that is relevant enough that they can come along and use it. And it has been interesting because the hangar area opened up first because it was a simpler part of the build and industry used it, all types of industry, everyone from people flying drones indoors. And just to give you some context, we've got a 5G closed network in there. We've got exhaust extractors, we've got um, welding bench extractors, we've got super fast broadband, big video wall. And the 5G is a good example of saying, why do you want money for a 5G network? I don't know, but unless we've got a 5G network, we can't find out how the technology (laughs) is. relevant to us. But we've had big software players come down and use them for use it for hackathons. Now they're interested in selling us some of their products. I'm not in the business of buying any of their products. But at the same time, they brought down, I think it's 15 SMEs in the open source intelligence space. They ran a hackathon. By the end of it, we had a bunch of users who understood better some of the tools that were now available in that space. We had a bunch of SMEs that now understood our problem sets better. And five of those SMEs have actually asked to come back to see whether they could collaborate to bring all their tools together in a single platform and whether we could get some innovation money. Great. Everyone wins. And the big software player will probably win because I imagine whatever gets built may well be hosted on their, their systems. So, so that's a smart, smart use of the space. We've got the army warfighting experiment from a military side of things going on downstairs at the moment. And they're running their sort of various Dragon's Den down selects and all that side of things. We've had advanced Autonomous Force 4 from the Royal Navy running the command and control node out of here and showing that they could do things at at reach between here, Portsmouth, across the ranges with new autonomous technology. That's the way it's being used currently. So we are being used more as an event space, um, I would say, currently, because we've got a conference facility here as well. But in businesses are starting to trickle in and some unusual ones as well, and they're starting to take up some of the co-working space. And it comes back to the why Dorset question to a degree that they've come young startups. And when I say young, you know, 20, 21 year olds who've already done very well and already sold one business so that, you know, these are, these are smart guys, but they're doing probably three years worth of the legwork involved in understanding the defense ecosystem and business development, whatever you want to call it, bearing in mind, they're still developing products. They haven't actually got anything to sell yet just by dint of being here and a combination of planned introductions, but also the unplanned, the serendipity, because everyone loves a, a measure of success within defense. And I, I refuse to really give one beyond uh, <laughs> it will be those moments of serendipity where everyone said, wasn't it lucky we met such and such? And I wasn't lucky. I spent a lot of time getting the money and building a building. But yeah, <laughs> you know, if we can create that environment, um, this is, yeah, build it and they will come. Yeah. I mean, if I was anywhere near your location, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to get rid of me. I can tell you that for nothing. Dorset's well, a what's, what's interesting, a that, that's <laughs> it. The, the, the tech guys keep coming back, weirdly, because even though you know, you'd know imagine them to be welded to London, they keep coming back because of the lifestyle down here. So that, you know, the combination of everything. Oh, the council paying you to say that. I'm, I feel like you've got <laughs> some sort of responsibility <laughs> to increase tourism for Dorset, but that's... that's no, not at all. Not we're, we're, trying, we're trying to change that slightly. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Got the internet endorsed it now. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, I think yeah. It's, it was well known as one of the few counties that don't have a motorway. That's true. You have to have a reason to come to Dorset. Yeah, yeah. that's right. No, no main roads go through it. Well, I've really enjoyed this chat. I'm not that I'm moving on from Dorset chat, but maybe the listeners want to hear more about that, or maybe they want to hear about from your perspective, Ed. What do you think good looks like in the future, and what direction do you think defence is heading? Defence innovation. So, so I think. 
for me, there, there was always a, a long-term vision. And from where I'm sat now on an innovation park with lots of empty plots for sale is effectively that the Battle Lab is an incubator and accelerator in the truest sense in that people can not only come through the door to get their product, existing product and tweak it and get it into defense or develop for defense, but they come and live here for a short period of time within the co-working space. And then they spin out into somewhere else on the site. And that in 10 years time, this particular site is full of interesting businesses doing really interesting stuff, doing the horizon scanning because they understand who we are as defense and what we do so intimately because they're living alongside us, that they're doing horizon scanning for problems that we haven't even identified yet and selling solutions to those products because that becomes a cycle, a you know, virtuous cycle. And that for me, that's what, what good would look like. But come back in, in five years time, we'll see. Ed, thank you so much. And yet another episode that I get probably a little bit too overexcited about. And it's all about innovation and nice to see a different approach to it from my perspective. Colin, you happy? Any questions from your side? No, nothing from me. Happy days. Uh, Ed, is there anything you want to leave us with before we crack on? Probably the final plug was actually uh, last week, we've started the consultation period for the NATO Diana Innovation Hub, of which we're the experimentation site. So headquartered up in Imperial. But yeah, the final plug for me is very much come down, talk to us, see who we are, what we do and how we can be helpful to you. Great. Key contact information and website URLs will be in the show notes as well. Thank you for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Other than being a great tourist shout out for the beautiful, apparently, Dorset coast. I hope that was really valuable. And I hope, you know, if there are senior personnel listening to this, and that's a great example of how, you know, empowering, doesn't matter who they are, what rank, but empowering someone who has a great idea and allowing them to see it through to fruition and supporting them and, and then engaging with the risk, but saying, well, that's good enough to take the risk. Please make it happen. I hope someone will take that on board and see how they can implement it in their kind of day-to-day lives. Yeah, as a Dorset boy, it's nice <laughs> to see the sleepy county that has no motorways become a powerhouse of innovation. Uh, <laughs> and I know that area, and it was previously there was a lot of atomic research going on down at Penfrith, mm-hmm. um, and they're sort of wondering what to do this area. So it's, it's nice to see that little hub that's in between where all the key players might need to be and a bit of a test range, a playground to really develop technology. Exciting. And I'm hoping that we do get to do more with the Battle Lab in future. It's a great opportunity for, for hopefully collaborations with them as well. So watch this space. Right then, should we move on to the news? Yeah, let's do that. Here we go. This is Andy from MSNT. Hello, everyone. Great to be back. There's certainly a lot of news going on. Yeah, Very uh, interesting times. In, in, unless you've been under a rock, quite a lot of stuff and stuff in mainstream media as well. So, so we'll go through that, but in no particular order. Thank you, Colin. I wanted to start with a story with MSNT, Military Simulation Training. It's about how much money the Pentagon is spending in general and how much they're looking at on the training side. There was a report that the administration, the Biden administration, is looking to look for a 3.2% increase in their defence budget to 800 $142 billion, which does seem an extraordinary amount to me. But the story, why it was in Emerson T, they delved into the detail of that. And apparently, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of the US synthetic training environment, a means to bring together lots of their virtual constructive simulations together. For financial year 24, they look as though they're going to decrease this from $495 million to uh, $427 million, which what are they going to do? I t- it's terrible, shocking. I Yeah, I think it would be great to hear more about that program. It does seem a lot of money compared to, um, to other programs, but also what's going on outside of defence in the simulation training world. So that story, I think, which then leads us nicely into last week, 
there were two major technology events. The first one was Epic Games. And, you know, hopefully people know me as someone who's been following the games industry for a long time. It keeps on giving. Obviously, there are other games engines out there, but this event was for the games developers for essentially Unreal. And as well as, you know, I advise anyone in our business to look at some of the highlights from that, they're meta human almost in real time turning an actor, but it could be anyone turning them within a minute, turning them to any avatar you want to be just by learning a bit of AI behind it. The next one I thought was uh, they're linking Unreal to Fortnite. Now, I don't play much Fortnite, but I do know it's important. So this is the idea that any, let's say, young person can be using Unreal Engine and creating environments in Fortnite. And what you're seeing, I just think there's going to be a whole explosion of interest in people joining the military or be coders. Well, not coders, but they'll just know how to put virtual worlds together. Groundbreaking. I think what got the most excitement in the gaming world is a thing called Unreal Fab. That isn't to do with 1960s music or something out of Thunderbirds. This is derivation of Sketchpad. So they're going to link all their content into one sort of shop window. So what they're calling their entire digital content is going to be all through this one entity called FAB, F-A-B, and also allow people to showcase their work. So it's going to essentially unify everything you've already got out there. So if you could imagine defense, you know, having people create stuff, having a marketplace, and then you can discover things all in one place. So between the US DoD and Games Developer Conference and people like Epic, that's what we need to be trying to draw the value. And just a quick question on the marketplace. Yeah. Are there more marketplaces? for? Because obviously there's the Unreal marketplace currently. So are there other places of content that Unreal sell things? Yes, or yes there are. Whereabouts? What are they? What do they do? Well, it's things like their animations. It's music. Other, what other people have created in terms of worlds as well. So I think it's bigger than being able to find you know, a coffee cup. It's just much bigger than that. It's, it's a unifying front door to everything that people can access. But also, it's going to be accessible if you're Unity as well. So other games engines and other, other areas and other tools. I'll have to look more into that to understand what's changing. I'll have a good look at those links in the show notes for that one. Yeah. Well, they're also claiming that there'll be a, a so-called fab plugin and you'll be able to discover the content you need and then literally drag and drop it into your scene, into what you're creating. And, and I've just been looking at it as we've been chatting. And so it's things like, yeah, mega scans and MetaHuman obviously started off as separate apps or separate parts of the website are all being brought. That makes a lot more sense. Fab, not sure about the name, but you know, whatever. <laughs> F-A-B. Yeah. It's a fab. <laughs> well, no, it, it's the shortened version of Sketchfab. That's what they said on the day. Right. That's how that's where it comes you from. See, Andy, Andy's got time to be on these web conferences. and I don't. Webinars. I'm just very, just just have to be quick at picking it, things up. And it's pe- just you, professional. He's it's, it's a, it's a journalist. It's his job. Well, there's job. other people who do, there's other people who summarize it for you. And yeah, but I'm not talking AI, real human beings. <laughs> not, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean... You can't just go asking AI every time to summarise it for you. Cut that out. We'll see about that. (laughs) So we'll put put some links on on the uh, Warfighter podcast site to uh, essential uh, reading, I think. I wanted to then take us to NVIDIA. I'm sure everyone knows. I would like to think everyone knows that NVIDIA is extremely powerful in uh, video cards for games. Over the recent years, they've pivoted, I think people say, much more into AI and uh, wider 
industrial use of their technology. So last week, there was a, a number of the, uh, their developers uh, conference. There was uh, quite a few announcements, which we don't have time to go into today. I've just picked out some in no particular order. I think what they're doing with essentially what they call path tracing now. So I think people have heard of ray tracing. Now, path tracing is something using filming and you can get you can work out the lighting much more accurately than ray tracing. And what they're they're getting to a point now and they're going to soon be demonstrating this cyberpunk 2077, which is a really uh, quite a contemporary AAA game that you'll be able to do path tracing. And the crucial thing is it's in real time, not in post-production. So I think in terms of where graphics are going, I didn't mention that Unreal 5.2 is being launched and you're seeing some of the graphics there. They're just, uh, it's getting to photographic quality. I think this this story is interesting because it's another example where AI machine learning is used, but it's very much under the hood. You never realize it's there, but it's been there all the time and it's just improving what you're doing, but it really isn't exposed at the sort of the other levels. Absolutely, Colin. Yeah, there's there's huge amounts. And Jensen Huang, who's the uh, CEO, is, is almost as enthusiastic about me about these technologies because, yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> although he's making a lot more money out of it than me, but he's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he, he gets that there's a sort of fusion of AI and computing hardware. He's uh, very enthused. They're also enthused about the idea of collaborative working in 3D worlds. They showed a powerful video, uh, I think it was for BMW, where people were working in a 3D world called Omniverse, but over Microsoft Teams. And they did announce that NVIDIA are going to be working, putting Omniverse into Microsoft Office, which if you think they're also adding ChatGPT, <laughs> there's an awful lot going on in, with Microsoft 365. But Omniverse, for those who don't know, is essentially a platform for bringing together 3D content from various other tools. So it all brings it into one place. So the idea, maybe in defense procurement, you could be bringing your assets, your data from various different sources and then bring it together in a collaborative 3D world, talking about it off Microsoft Teams. Very exciting, I think, not just for training, but wider defense. So the uh, vice president of the Omniverse ecosystem at NVIDIA said last week, we believe in the future of the internet will be 3D and the industrial side of the metaverse will be companies that transition or digitally digitalize the entire workflow. So have a look at some of the videos coming out of NVIDIA last week, which I think brings us nicely to, uh, I know the metaverse word has had its ups and downs. It seems to be Certainly the so-called military metaverse has come back. It was good to see recently in the middle of March that the military metaverse hit the headlines in the Daily Telegraph and other, other publications and got a lot of exposure. Well, I think the good news is that simulation and training is becoming mainstream. And certainly BAE were in the news because they were working with a number of smaller companies showing how they could bring together technologies in support of simulation and training. So I think, I think that was uh, really good to see that. I think what is missing in my mind is that, yeah, it's a, it's a great demonstration, but it's when will this move to being a more persistent kind of capability that the warfighter can just hop into anytime they need to and discover who they need to train and operate with. So I think the persistency is missing for that. But nevertheless, some good stories, which again, I, I assume we'll put on our website. No, I, I agree. I think that that's, that's something we want to get some people on the show you know, later on talk about that. I think it's two, two interesting points. One is say, Andy, how's this turn from proof of concepts to more business as usual? You know, just these, these are things we just have. And the other bit is about engaging SMEs. I think that's a really important bit. How do you support 
the innovators, the startups, and then sort of bring them into that defense ecosystem? Because I think that's something we still haven't got right. I think there are other big companies out there who, who are trying to do this. But I think in this case, BA systems, yeah, bringing together, it helps smaller companies for sure to bring their innovation in. I've no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, I've seen demos over the years and they get better and better. It's how do you make it, as you said, it's persistent, a bit like Fortnite, dare I say, that you can just hop in anytime you need to discover who's the best person to play with or train with and you just get on with it and it's all linked and so forth. Great, Andy. I think we've cut you short there because there's a couple of stories we're going to have to talk about next time. Maybe we're just looking more closely, but it definitely feels like there's more stories and things going on. I would just say briefly, Colin, that I get excited about this stuff and we haven't even talked about AI in the news in this bit, but I just think there's just so much going on and truly exciting times. Thank you, Andy. So that is it for yet another episode. Last thing to say, I think, and it's important to mention it because, you know, listeners may notice this, Colin, and, it, and it's to do with you. Um, just, just, just out of interest, did you rate and review our own podcast? Yes, yes, I did, <laughs> as requested. So you can't, you, your actions are as important as what you say. Yeah. <laughs> but I did, partly because partly I didn't know how to leave a review. It's not actually that easy on Apple. Right. You, you have to go and find the little bit where you actually leave it. So it was merely to test the process. And of course, it was with five stars. So I mean, you know, we document that, let people know how it's done. Yeah, but did you have to say how great Colin Hillier was on your own review? <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't identify a particular host. No, I, was, I was very complimentary. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, if you please, if you do, if you are inspired by Colin's Herculean efforts, then please feel free to go on and give us a review. We really would appreciate it. All right, that's it. Colin, anything from you? And maybe they can vote for their favourite host later. That's going to get awkward. That's going to get awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Colin hasn't turned up this week. (laughs) Or Tom hasn't turned up this week. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.